back for episode two of um, season two. Season two. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's Jay singing in the background. Uh, Jay's um, actually a um, very good singer. Um, Jay is in the church choir. Jay is actually a very good singer. But we're, so our topic today is going to be um, Jehovah's Witnesses or my experience within the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, you know what I meant to tell you? Yeah. The other day, I forget where I was driving, but I drove past a Jehovah's Witness church and it said Kingdom Hall. And I was going to send a picture and send it to you. But then I got distracted because I saw a dog. <laughs> Yeah, they're all over the place, different countries and stuff. There was I went by one when I was in Barbados. Um, yeah, they're all, they're everywhere. But um, yeah, so I thought I would share some experiences, and if you had any questions, then I would try to answer those questions and just kind of go from there. Hmm. So, hmm. well, this question is from me personally, actually. Explain what a Jehovah Witness is, because I know what it is, but not in depth. You know, I'm a dork, so. So in the Bible, it talks about um, us being a witness of God. Um, and Jehovah's Witnesses take that literally, and, you know, they've called themselves witnesses. And they believe in at least their interpretation of how you should live their life, your life, and living their life that way and showing through some sort of example um, how you should proceed in a godly way and therefore being a witness of God, of what God wants you to be and how he wants you to live. So what we would call like a, a missionary or... We there are missionaries within the the um, the Jehovah's Witness community. There are also theologians. There's many different facets. There's elders. <laughs> there's elders. There's. It's the structure of it is. I thought Baptist Christianity was weird. So. There are many different differences, but the biggest is that you would get, is. This right here is what a kingdom hall sounds like. There's someone talking on the microphone. You can hear the fans right now, or you can hear whatever. We didn't have fans, but it's the silence. There's generally silence when someone's talking, when someone is, quote, unquote, preaching. They don't even really call them sermons. They're talks. Um, I used to have to give talks. It's not just like you have here at the church, you have a preacher, you have ministers and stuff. Everyone who is baptized in, on a certain level with your, within the church and just you going field service and doing everything else, you do talks. You do talks from an early age, many sermons from an early age. There are nine, ten-year-olds giving talks. Um, you have to go and research the stuff yourself. You have to write it out yourself, and then you try, in most, most cases, they're reading it. I always had to memorize whatever it is. That's just how I am. And then you go up there before 
the congregation. They would separate the rooms. There would be a smaller room and then the large main room. And depending on what type of level you were on, you would be in one room or the other. So if you were a beginner and you're still kind of new at this or you're not as good at it, you'd be in a smaller room. And if you were more seasoned, then you would be in the main room. And you would sit there for 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever, and talk about whatever point you had to make. Um, it's a weird experience. There's a lot of stuff thrust upon you right away from an early age, like going door to door. The funny thing is I was making a joke with um, my cousin when we went to the Freehold Mall because it's changed so much. Now you see Jehovah's Witnesses standing on corners and they have these little displays with the magazines and stuff in it and they just stand there. Now you see them at the mall. They had a table set up at the mall with just brochures, don't say anything to you unless you come up to them. Before, it was more like the sneaker salesman, the sneaker um, shoe cleaner guy at the mall where you're just like hounding people and running them down. Like we were going on strangers' doors, knocking on the doors, peeking through blinds, like whatever else, trying to get people to, you know, listen for a few minutes, read this watchtower, get this awake, whatever. And now it's more like there's not that pressure, but they put an immense amount of pressure on you from a very early age to like get Bible studies, which essentially going to strangers' houses, giving them this information, getting somebody to agree to let you into their house, and then eventually getting them to agree to let you come back regularly to teach them about certain things in the Bible and getting that Bible study. There's like a ridiculous amount of pressure on you to do these things, and I had to do these things. Yeah, I don't know how you did that. I, I, mm, could I have done that? No. I barely do what I'm supposed to do now. Um, what else do I want to know? Hmm. You think about that for a second. Um, that was the difficult part when I left because you have all of these Bible studies and essentially most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time it ends up being someone your age or younger. Um, not all the time, I had a few people that were older, but I had some, a lot of kids basically. And that's a difficult thing because when you're leaving, you're also leaving them and then somebody else comes in and tries to reach out and talk to them, but maybe they talk to them, maybe they don't. And it's weird because once I started realizing that this wasn't what I felt to be true and moving away from it and then eventually leaving, I felt guilty for leaving the people that I started these Bible studies with because it was like I led them down the wrong path and now I was just like deserting them. But there was nothing I could do other than going there and saying, oh, this is all a scam and don't listen to these people anymore or whatever. It's like there was no exit strategy there when you're leaving like that. They just take over and then they're talking to them and then they're telling them they're not to talk to you anymore. It's this isolation thing. So that was very um, a very difficult thing. 
one of the many, many difficult things. Did you think of it? Mm, what was the scariest part about walking the dog? Was it the fear of the unknown or like leaving everyone? In the beginning, leaving everyone was, was scary because that's another thing and the most cult-like thing about it is that they isolate you. Most of these cults, like the Branch Davidian or whoever else you see, like, so I'm careful with the cult word. A lot of people just go cult when they talk about cult witnesses. There's a thin line between cult and a religion, and there's many people that could say any religion is a cult, depending on how they assess the cult to be. But I will say there were some cult like there was some cult like behavior and meaning like these are things that happen regularly within cults. And one big thing is separating you from mainstream society. And that's what they did. They would tell you that everybody that was outside of the church and every non-baptized person was a worldly individual and you shouldn't be with worldly people. So you had all these friends at school or wherever else. They would push you, like really, really push you and guilt you into not associating with these people anymore and only associating with people at all. Well, okay, that's fine if you can find some friends that your age there at the hall. But then when you decide to leave and these people are told not to even acknowledge you anymore, then essentially you're not just leaving the religion, you're leaving behind all of those relationships overnight. Literally just gone like that. People that were like aunts or uncles to you, people, your best friends, whoever else it was, everybody's just gone, just like that, within an instant, just because this one group of people says, well, you can't, you, you know, you, you're not following along with whatever, and we're going to disfellowship you or whatever. And that was definitely a scary part in the beginning. Eventually, I realized that these friendships weren't sustainable and weren't really good friendships to begin with and how much I was just like um, kind of brainwashed in the whole scenario. But in the beginning, it was very difficult and very scary to do that. Um, is there anyone from Kingdom Hall that you wish you could still talk to? Yes, um, there are quite a few people. Um, honestly, so my best, my ex-best friend was in the Kingdom Hall with me, and he left, and I was supposed to stop talking to him because he was getting disfellowship, and I was being um, under reproach. There's different levels, so the reproach thing is more like a suspension. It's like a temporary thing. Sometimes they don't even mention that you're on reproach to people. A lot of times they do. And then it's just something where after a certain amount of time passes, they just go, okay, and you just go right back to business as normal. This fellowship means like that's a termination and severing. Can't talk to this person at all. Don't associate with this person at all. Like isolation. You walk into the hall, these people you knew since you were a baby or whatever, don't even make eye contact with you. The funny thing about that is they believe that this is a motivating factor 
and getting you to, quote, unquote, do the right thing, turn your life around, and go back. <laughs> there are some people that went back that were that brainwashed, but, again, that's another thing that's very cult-like. Um, but, yeah, so... There are a couple of friends that I had or I thought were, like, pretty good friends um, that I do wish that I was still in communication with. But, again, it was ultimately their choice not to um, speak with me anymore. So it is what it is. Mm. Well, I know you wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but... What was the moment where you knew you had to leave? What was the final deciding factor? The final deciding factor was the friendship thing. But beyond the friendship thing, there were many moments before that where I was like, I probably should leave. Honestly, I got to the point where the only reason that I hadn't left was because of my friendships with people. So then when a, my best friend was out the door, and that's the person I interact with the most, and I have to like not talk to and associate with this person. And at that, like, we went to the same college. We had some of the same courses. So like, I'm gonna see him regularly, and I'm supposed to just pretend like, and I was like, yeah, I can't do this. And then I knew then that also the people that were quote unquote, my friends would do that to me. So then I just had to really look at it and say, well, what kind of friendships are these really that I'm holding on to here as opposed to going and seeing with this friendship, if I can continue this friendship here. So that's when I really decided, but leading up into that, there were a lot of things where I just went, this doesn't seem right to me. Just the truths of things started revealing. It's funny because they call the um, everything that you learn there and you're taught, everything is referred to as the truth. Make the truth your own. Everything that they teach you there is the truth. That's the overall narrative there. Um, and once I started realizing that this truth was very, um, very, how do I say it? It's like this truth, basically, was very one-sided. It was, it was never a discussion. It was never really fully articulated or explained. It was just, this is what it is, follow along this path. And I'm the type of person who has questions, who wants to know things and understand things. And when you ask them questions and you ask too many questions, they refer you to a higher up person, an elder or whatever. And then that person just repeats the same stuff that you've been taught all the way up to that point, and that's it. And then if you keep asking about it, now you're becoming a problem and you need to study more. You need to, it's like a punishment thing. You let's read some more of these. You need more more education, more counseling, which really isn't more education, it's more let's repeat this over and over again. It's stand up at the chalkboard 
and write, I will not, you know, throw gum in class a hundred times on the chalkboard. That's essentially what they're doing when they're doing this to you. They're not giving you any answers to anything. So when it was like that, then I was just like, okay. And I started doing things, started testing things out. Because I'm like, okay, so all these people are just okay with following along and just going with what said. Nobody is asking anything or thinking for themselves. So I started just testing stuff and just putting stuff out there to see if people would catch on. I think I mentioned one time here, um, one time I had a talk and I started to talk off with like three sentences in Icelandic. And I said in the talk, I made a, compar a comparison saying basically that what good is the word, what good are the scriptures in the Bible um, if you don't take the time to understand the scriptures in the Bible, right? So I'm using that, a language barrier. You don't, I'm saying something informative here, but you don't understand what it is. So I say these three lines to tell the people what it meant. And so many people came up to me afterwards to tell me how great that was. They couldn't believe that I, I learned, you know, that much Icelandic to do this talk or whatever. Completely made up. Not Icelandic at all. Why do you just be doing stuff with people? But you know the fact that not one person bothered to even, like, look into this, to fact check this, to whatever gave me like everything that I need. I'm like, these really, they're just, they're lemon. They're just going to go right off the cliff. Like they don't, they just don't look into it that way. And I'm like, this isn't who I am. <laughs> but I had to do these little things to just kind of confirm what I already knew anyway. Um, another little thing it's funny, it's just, so a lot of the people that, many of the people that I went to the hall with, though I don't talk to them anymore, a lot of them aren't in the hall anymore. Because what happens is, and it's very similar to, I've noticed like for instance, Amish, the Amish in their teens and stuff, and you're put in this position where you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. Everything is like scrutinized, you can't be, out with you know someone of the opposite sex unchaperoned you can't go if you go to this dance they may play secular music or whatever else and it's not good you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that all these little things that are controlled that it gets to the point where when these kids get old enough to now be responsible for themselves they just go <laughs> completely off the deep end and a lot of them like that I like would hear about or run into later on, they had like addiction problems and like just really unhealthy like relationships and situations and just like really, you know, life hit them hard because they're just rebelling against the fact that you tried to isolate them so much and they just weren't allowed to just be kids or just exist or figure things out for themselves in a certain regard and just had to conform so much that they just really went over the edge. And you see that a lot within um, the Kingdom Hall. There's just a lot of that because it's, there's so much pressure on the young people within the hall it's just it's insane it's it's um nothing is really a choice everything is an obligation 
everything is the expectation. And there's just a, a huge level of guilt and responsibility for everything. And they don't ever seem to let it go. Like even when I left the hall, one, um, this woman who was a friend of my mother's, right? They became friends in Lamas. One of my friends, um, like Lamas class. Yes, one of my friends, um, Ray. Mm -hmm. He, his mother was pregnant with him when my mother was pregnant with me, and they met in Lamas class. So we, that's how me and him became friends. So they knew each other for a long time, right? So when my mother dies. She's one of the only ones from the hall that actually showed up to the, um, the funeral home. So she shows up, and I'm not thinking about the whole thing at the moment. I'm just thinking this is someone who knew my mother for a long time. She's coming over to pay her respects, and, you know, I'm not thinking any drama is going to come about or anything else. She comes over and, you know, gives me, like, a big hug and stuff, and, you know, I'm, I'm okay with this. And then, right after she hugs me, this is during the wake, because she didn't stay for the actual service. She just came to the wake. My mother's casket's still open right behind me. After this woman hugs me, she goes, well, you know, now this is me, single father me, taking all this responsibility on, doing this whole thing, funeral possessed by myself. Everybody else telling me how great of a job I'm doing or whatever else with everything else that I'm doing. Gives me the hug. You know, it's not too, light, too late to get your life together so you, maybe you could see her again one day. And then walks away. I can't stand people like that, and I can't tell you how much I cannot stand people like that. That was not the time nor the place. Yeah, but that's how they are. See, that's why you didn't have my, I wasn't your friend back then because <laughs> I would have tore your mama's funeral up. I'm like, well, who are you? Go to bed. You're going to be in the casket next. Go away. <laughs> like, there was so much drama at that funeral. It was just ridiculous. Like, it's only by the grace of God. Because he, I never, you know, I didn't cry until after the funeral, until after everything was over. Like, I had to compartmentalize everything to just handle everything. So I didn't allow myself to feel the emotion of it until after everything was done. And that's the only reason I didn't really go off on her or anything else at the time. But there was so much drama there between that and my cousin that I told you about before, who I don't really talk to that much because of what he did with my son and my ex and everything else, and me pushing him away when he tried to give me a hug. And then I have an aunt who's, oh, my God, she's an aunt by marriage, and she's just. Why is it always the family members about marriage that got the most to say? It's just her. Like, you just a, you a permanent member at the party. You ain't even, like, for real. I could dismember you. You know what's <laughs> funny? She is the anti... I'm not going to say Christ. her name. No, she's the anti-Deidre. Because I have an aunt... Anti-who? The anti-Deidre. Because I have an aunt Deidre. And when I tell you, I've told her this before. She's an aunt by marriage. But I told her. Now... Her and my uncle Jeff were happily married, been happily married for a long time. But I told her, if they ever got a divorce, I'm choosing her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Like, we love, everybody in the family loves her so much. She is family. It doesn't matter that it's a certificate that says she's, she's family. She's just, she's, she's been so supportive of so many people and done so much for so many people in the family and just been around for so long. Like, she is family, you know? But this other aunt, nobody can <laughs> stand her. Everybody has an issue with her. And she thinks, so she calls herself, um, she became like, first she was a member of this church, and now she's like one of the leaders in church and calls herself an apostle and wants everybody to refer to her as an apostle. And Okay, let me, side, side point. Apostles, don't they have to be appointed or called? Like, you can't just claim to be one? She appointed herself. So yeah. she another one that got people living in her head? Yeah, Voices. yeah, she's got a lot of... Um, a lot of issues, but anyway, um, if she ever listens to this, she's going to know I'm talking about it, but it's what it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there was a lot of drama there, but I just kind of dealt with it um, because I had to. And then later on, when I went back to the house and my mother's house and she wasn't there and everybody had already left, you know, because they stayed there for a while and then left, then that's when I just completely like broke down. But that's another thing. But, um, yeah, the Jehovah's Witness thing, I like to talk about it as much as possible because I know a lot of people get pulled into it. It's very easy to get pulled into it because it's very unassuming in the beginning, and they give you a lot of information. And some of the stuff that they give you is not that much different than any other religion that you would get. And it's not like a really extreme thing right away. See, I think a lot of people when they think of stuff that's, like, cult-like, they see, like, the extremes of stuff, you know? They see, like, Manson. They see, like, Jim Jones. They think, like, it's just wild-eyed, crazy guy who comes over and just, like, tells you, like, there's aliens coming down and they're on a comet and we got to go here and kill ourselves and get on here and go to this outer terrain and all this other stuff. But it doesn't really start like that. It starts with a charismatic person smiling in your face who's kind of pleasant and giving you a lot of stuff that seems reasonable and true. And then over time, they pick away and pick away and pick away, and then the next thing you know, you're in this, like, hole, and you're wondering, how did I get here, and why is this my reality kind of a thing, you know? So I talk about it more so for people to be, like, wary, um, and know like exactly like how this works and get a better picture of what it really is. Do you have any more questions? So where, at what point did you realize that like what you were in was not conducive to who you wanted to be? Um. I talked about this before, but I used to be in the food service industry. And the only way that I could survive in the food service industry when you're living off the tips was to become a really good actor. Because if you are antisocial, if you're an introvert, and you work at a job where you're living depends upon you making connections with people, that's a very difficult thing. 
And the only way that you can find to get around that is to put on a persona and to just become an actor and look at it as a role. And that's what I did. And I did that very well to the point where I'm sure a lot of people that I had as regulars would not tell you that, would think that I was like an isolated person who didn't really want to be around people. I got so many invites to things. There was um, a seven-year period where I was a regular at these elderly um, couples. They, they had a band, the guy had a band, and he had a bunch of older people um, for, as friends and stuff. And they used to invite me to their Super Bowl party every year. I would come by for like an hour or whatever, and then just show my face and then leave, whatever. But that's the kind of connections I had with these people. This is even after I stopped working at the restaurant. People you know, would come in and specifically ask for me, and if I wasn't there, they would leave, <laughs> stuff like that. And it was just acting. It was just, okay, this is what I need to be to get what I want out of the situation. And then one day I realized basically when I was there that that's what I was doing there, that I was acting. And not just me, a lot of us were doing this. Um, there were times when we went to, I think I mentioned this before, we went to the assembly. We had to go to the assemblies, one in Jersey City, one was in Philly at the old Veterans Stadium. We were going to the one in Philly and my friend was driving and the whole way up there, we're listening to like DMS, Blood of My Blood. This is did not. Did tell me that story. Yeah. Tell me that story. This is not <laughs> something that if any member of the hall like even saw the album cover, would have approved of. But that's what we were doing on the way, all the way there. We watched wrestling, and back then, at that time, this is during the Attitude Era and WWE when they had like bra and panties matches and <laughs> all these other crazy things, you know? Every other word's a curse word, stuff like that. That's not stuff that's appropriate for us to watch or do. We went to all kinds of movies that we weren't supposed to go to. It was all secretive, though. It was all behind closed doors, and there were a lot of people saying or doing things behind closed doors. So essentially the majority of the people that I came in contact with were acting. And then that when I like looked back at it and stuff, and I'm, I'm like, if you have to try this hard to fit into this thing, then it's really not a realistic like thing. It's not who you really are. It's just you're just, everybody's putting on a front because they know that this is what's acceptable and being who they actually are is not acceptable. And it wasn't like, okay, you can't, you know, smoke crack, you can't do this, you can't do that. It wasn't just extreme things or damaging things or things that even that you saw that were um, scripturally wrong. It was just anything that they didn't approve of was on the same level, whether it was scriptural or not. They didn't approve of it. It was the same as if God didn't approve of it, that type of thing. Well, oh, I got one more question. This okay. is going to be funny, though. Um, what was your favorite part of the hall that now you look back on and you're like, why did I even enjoy that? Um, <laughs> I liked... Um, I liked some, it's funny that, because I'm doing this now, I actually liked 
a lot of the music, but the music wasn't what anybody like within the Baptist or even Pente like Pentecostal or whatever else would consider to be like really music because when you sing there, it's the same as this. So I, I don't want to sing, but basically you're talking. It's all melodies. So like we had, um, there's one make the truth your own song, whatever. And it's just everybody saying together and it just, Make the truth your own. It's this tone the entire time. And everyone singing. Why would you even like Because you get used to it. You and I hate it. monotone things. <laughs> what happens is, you ever like, as a kid, did you ever find yourself like humming Amazing Grace or the Pledge of Allegiance or whatever else at some point when you weren't in school or saying it to yourself? When I was younger, not since I've been older. I no, I'm saying when you're younger. Anymore. Yeah. Like, but the reason why I feel like I did it when I was younger is because you hear it every single day at school. You're doing the Pledge of Allegiance, you're doing whatever else, and it becomes like embedded in your head, and it's just part of your routine. So we did this so much that it just became a normal thing and it was just part of the routine. So I would just be like cooking something and I'm humming these songs and stuff and whatever. And it wasn't until like later on and stuff, I'm looking back and it was like, that was just like really like, really. Oh, like Yeah, weird. and very horrible too. Like it just. I should give you an exorcism. <laughs> Cause that's what it is though. There's no choir, there's no music. It's just, well, scratch that. Sometimes they play a tape. There's a tape, like this is when they had cassette tapes, but they would play the cassette tape, it didn't transition in CD, and it would just be a piano. It would just, nothing but a piano. There was no real percussion. So, so no there Stevie no, Wonder piano, just piano. Yes. Just like an opera. No guitar, no percussion, just a piano. A symphony. Yes. <laughs> and these monotone voices, all collectively, just singing as they read you out of the book. I fall asleep? I'd have been asleep. I fall asleep now, and our church is lively. I fell asleep a lot there, um, but that's really what it was. It was just, it's very quiet the entire time. The most noise you hear is when people are first walking in and congregating before and after, and then that's it. You, like, you could probably hear a mouse in the corner. It's that, that quiet. But, um, a mouse piss on cotton. Yeah, so it's... See, I don't like stuff like that. That's creepy and eerie. How did you survive, Jermaine? Because you were nothing like that. You were not conducive to that environment. <laughs> you do not fit in. One thing that I did like a lot, they took it away. When we used to go to assemblies, the one in Jersey City, this is the one assembly at that time that all my cousins wanted to go to, even the ones that wouldn't go to the hall regularly with my grandmother they would try to find ways of not being in the house. <laughs> but everybody went to the one in Jersey City for two reasons. One, they had this projector um, over the ceiling, and when you would sit there, they did a segment where it would just be the clouds and space. All the lights would go down, and you would just see like this night sky above you. That was really cool as a kid. And the other part was the fact that they used to have a thing where 
there was food there. They had like danishes and chips and like sub sandwiches and soda. And everything was on a contribution level. They had these little contribution boxes, which you were just expected to the trust system. You're putting enough contribution into this box to equate for all of the foods that you're eating. And we were going there and stacking up on all of this stuff. Our grandmother would just let us go get stuff. And she would give us like $10 to put into the box. Meanwhile, we're eating like $15 each. And there's like 10 cousins. Not 10 cousins. Yeah, like we were, we, when I tell you we had stomach aches every day after we left these assemblies, and that's why it ended, because people, you know, weren't actually paying enough to (laughs) rationalize them having all of this food. So after like seven years or whatever, it it ended, and then they didn't have the food there anymore, and then we had to like go outside to get food or whatever in Jersey. But um, yeah, but that was my favorite thing at the time. <laughs> hmm. Well, I think I'm done questioning you about Kingdom Hall. Mm-hmm. One thing I can say, there was one brother, um, and I, the brother funny... Brother th- or brother? Brother in the hall. Oh. I Wait. don't... Mm, Did you say brother-in-law or brother in the brother hall? Brother in the hall. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I hate that. um, So I don't want to say the brother's name, but um, it's funny because when you grow up in something, you have these pivotal pivotal moments where you certain milestones or certain things that become part of structurally who you are exist within that space too. So you don't like the space. But then when you think back about certain things, you are forced to think back to that space, you know? So for instance, I think about this particular brother, anytime, I don't wear ties as much anymore because my neck is disproportionate to the rest of my body, especially now, and the collars don't fit right. So He's so dramatic. No, it is. Um, my neck so is, dramatic. I went to a tailor to get a custom suit and I told him this, and he's just like, okay, whatever. And he goes to measure me or whatever. And he go, he literally said in front of my father, well, I haven't seen that before. Because, like, I'm a size, like, 15, like, especially now. Now I'm in, like, a size 15 shirt, but my neck is a size 17 shirt. If you, if you You're know, saying your neck is bigger than the rest of you? My neck is disproportionately big. Somebody who is a medium shirt... Or, but I have a big head, so I have to have a big yeah, neck. Yeah, you got a megadome. Yes. <laughs> so I have to have dome. a big neck. <laughs> so my neck doesn't fit the collared shirts. So I usually wear shirts unbuttoned. That's why I don't wear a tie anymore. Back then, I used to wear really big shirts, even though, so I would wear oversized stuff. I mean, it I was the early 2000s, bro. Yeah. But even suits were, people wore the oversized suits. So anyway, what I'm saying here is, there's a brother in the hall who was actually the person, because I mentioned before that my father wasn't always around for certain things. So it was a brother in the hall who first taught me how to tie a tie. Aww. So anytime that I ever had to tie a tie, I would think back to that day in the bathroom at the Kingdom Hall and in front of the mirror as he's trying to show me the process of doing it 
because so many times after that, I had to flash back when I was doing it myself, and okay, he said to do it this way, and it becomes embedded in your head, and you just see that essentially for the rest of your life. This may sound weird, but my dad taught me how to tie a tie, but not my brothers. <laughs> yeah, that's a little weird. I'm, I he I tell him all the time, you want a son for a thing. <laughs> and he, he just looks at me, and I'm like, you did, because you taught me all the stuff normal people teach your sons. You taught me how to fix cars, taught me how to fix things in the house, taught me how to tie a tie. My brothers don't know. Diddly squat. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> like, sorry. That's funny. <laughs> Um, do you have any more questions? Mm, no. Thanks for the clarity on the kingdom hall, though. Well, Jehovah's Witness altogether. I don't know how you did it. I mm. I it was um, an interesting thing. Oh, and you have a problem with baptism. You would have hated that baptism. Because, first of all, you didn't do it at the individual kingdom hall. You had to go to the assembly. So there were a bunch of people, all like from different. Wait, so there's areas. multiple people there, more than who you know. Different kingdom halls, yeah. Uh huh. And then there's a there's a big, no. a big. I don't even like the fact that I have to get baptized in front of people I do know. <laughs> the pool there is like a swimming pool pool. No. And you go down, and then this stranger who you've never met before just like fully like puts you all the way down into no. the floor and then back up again. No. First of all, Jesus got baptized by John. He knew John. And it's in the basement, too, which is also weird. So you're around all these so strangers. So you got me up under a building? <laughs> no. <laughs> Jay, no. Stop this madness. No. I will never. It's dark, too. In this life, be a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> Not in the next life, either. Or any other lives I may live. <laughs> so, No. You're going to baptize me in front of people I don't even know. I don't even know if you really be doing what you're supposed to do for real. <laughs> and you be, next thing you know, you baptize me, you don't put a curse on me, and I'm I'm destined to go to hell. What, what am I going to do with that? That's the other part, though. You don't really even know who people are because, you know, within, like, the church here, at least when we do communion and stuff like that, there are certain ceremonial robes and stuff like that. But pretty much everybody, like, just wears the same like J.C. Penney's style, like suits and stuff like that. So you don't really, you know, at your place, that's where most of them shop. It's J.C. Penney's and Sears. My suits came from. I'm so mad at you. It's the um, way you said it. <laughs> but like, you know, everybody pretty much dresses the same. No one is like standing out from anybody else. Yeah, but. So if you meet somebody from a different hall and you really don't know them, like the guy that baptized me, he was just in a white, a long white T-shirt. And some white guy in a white T-shirt who I just met said congratulations afterwards, and that was it. It's like, okay. See, that's my thing. I feel like, how do I want to say this? How do I trust you to baptize me, and I don't really even know what you're about? I don't know if you're living the way you're supposed to live. Yeah. I, I mean, granted, you're not going to be perfect because we're not God. We're not perfect. But I don't know if you do what you're supposed to be doing. How do, how do I know that you ain't outside a heathen Monday through Saturday, and now you here on Sunday trying to baptize me. <laughs> like I need, I need to see it in action. Yeah. Like literally, I was at. How long was I here before I got? Well, my there? friend's father was that. My friend's father was very respected in the the hall until we they found out that he was like stepping out with this other woman behind his wife's back. 
And um, he was on. He was big pimp and spend them cheese. We also <laughs> used to talk about people so much there. Like we had all these like buy stories with everybody and buy stories. Yeah, like well, I used to do this a lot. Like I would. So I would be bored, and I would, like, at college, I'd be at the bus stop waiting, i see somebody in the distance having a conversation, and I would provide all the dialogue from this conversation that we couldn't hear from my friends, which they seemed to, like, love. Like, this is what's going on. There's a guy at the, who I never even met. His name was BD for Big Draws. And I used to have daily conversations <laughs> that he was having with people. I didn't even know what his voice sounded like. But... <laughs> It was it was college. Um. <laughs> I don't even have a response for that because that is the most J-esque thing if I ever did hear it. <laughs> it's not that it's unexpected. It's expected. It's just you would hope not. <laughs> but I'm good at making up stuff on the spot and like stories and dialogue and I could go on for like 15, 20 minutes with this whole conversation that he's having with this random person just waiting there for his ride. But I don't know. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's pretty much the general experience of what it's like to be a Jehovah's Witness for anyone who was wondering. And um, hopefully I could have shown some light on that and you are a little more well-informed of what that really is. Mm. I can't believe it. How many years were you a part of the hall? Until I was, sir, twenty. When did you start? Well, I was raised in fall, so, so. twenty years. Yeah. <laughs> well, now here's another question. Oh okay. well, pops, pops was in the world at the time, wasn't he? How did pops end up marrying a Jehovah's Witness? I need answers. No, well, my mother was never baptized. My grandmother was, and I spent most of my time at my grandmother's house because my mother, well, my parents got divorced when I was 11. Um, they were separated for a year, like a year before that, and my mother worked overnight a lot, so I spent the majority of my time at my grandmother's house, which meant I had to go to the hall, and I, she had fills, she had Bible study at her house and everything else, so that's where that all comes in. Although my mother is technically the person who got my grandmother into the hall. That was a funny story. My grandmother used to be one of these people that would hide from Jehovah's Witnesses. And one day somebody came to the door oh, and my mother pulled back the curtains and said, she said she's not home. <laughs> so then my grandmother felt bad and guilty, went up to the door to talk to the woman. Eventually that turns into a regular conversation and she eventually got baptized and ended up going to the hall, even though my mother never got baptized when she would go to the hall occasionally and said that that was her religion, but she never really fully committed. I, what did my, okay, so one time, this was before the no solicitation thing and they couldn't come up to your door and ring your door yeah. and stuff. Um, so they came up to my house one time. For those of you who don't know, as uh, who don't know me like for real, for real, in real life, when I get ready, I can be a bit of an a-hole, even as a kid. It was actually quite scary because that switch would flip and there was no turning it off until I felt like turning it off. So one time, my aunt used to talk to them, but she was never a Jehovah's Witness. She, was, she used to go to the same church we went to before she moved back home to take care of my grandmother. So 
she's in the house and she tells the doorbell starts ringing. She tells me to go answer the door. So I go answer the door. I ain't know at the time that they were Jehovah's Witnesses. I was like eight. I ain't know who they were. Um, they're knocking on the door. I open it. And I'm just irritated. Because for one, I just got woken up out of my nap to come <laughs> open this door. <laughs> so now, that's strike one with you. Yeah. Two, you standing here with pamphlets. It's summertime. I'm not reading. I'm out of school. That's strike two for you. Now, if you hit strike three, I'm not responsible for what occurs. So she's sitting there. And she's like, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? What? Yeah, she's like, do you? I said, do you know this? She's like, what? I took the pamphlet, slammed the door, and locked it went back upstairs. My aunt was like, what'd you do? I said, this is for you. And I tossed it, <laughs> laid back down. And then later that day, my aunt was Did like, Did she what ever is? come back? Not after that. My aunt was okay, like. Okay, well, you're, you're fortunate. <laughs> no, aunt. because there's something else about, well, let's say this thing about your aunt first. Go ahead before you forget. So after that, my aunt, when my mom got home, she didn't know what I did. She happened to ask me, what did they ever say to you at the door? I said, well, she asked me if I knew if Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior. She's like, well, what did you say? I said, what did you say? And she said, well, what did she say? I said, she started saying it again. I took the pamphlet and slammed the door in her face. <laughs> and my mom is just staring at me because she knows I did it. My aunt doesn't want to believe I did it. My mom is like, you don't know your niece. She, <laughs> she did that. <laughs> I guarantee you, with the way she is saying it straight face, and she has not cracked a smile yet, she did it. <laughs> and my aunt's like, why are you so mean to people? You weren't raised that way. Why is she knocking on my door during my nap time? And I just want y'all to know, as a grown adult, almost 26 years old, you ring my doorbell while I'm sleeping, you're guaranteed to get the same response. Just want you to know. If you're supposed to be here, you have a key. <laughs> the reason why I asked you if she came back was because there's another thing people don't know. Um, this makes them a little gang-like rather than cult-like. Um, when you're in field service, you have your own territory. So I had my own territory. They literally give you this card, and it's a map. And that is your territory. You work that territory. No other person, without letting you know first or coming with you, no other witness will work that territory unless they're in your group or with you. So it's like, this is my, my, my so block. So you all the whole gang out here? You had JW's it. up. <laughs> when I left. Get off my JW turf. When, when I got reproached before I actually got this fellowship, when they thought I was going to come back, I had I handed over my territory card to someone else. I passed over my territory. This is your territory now. It was, that's how that I works. I promise you, if you ever showed up at my door, your nose would have been kissed in my front door. <laughs> promise you. I don't play that. Like Steve Harvey said, ring my doorbell on my answer butt naked. Now, as a grown woman, if they were still allowed to solicit. That's happened. That's, that happened to I me I will stand there. Why are you at my door? But here's the thing. That was the acting part. It was like a character thing. So you get door, you get rejected a lot. You get the doors slammed in your face and stuff like that. I had to disassociate. They're not rejecting me. They're not slamming the door in my face. It's my character. They're rejecting my character. No, it's your religion. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's like the mindset that I had to take on because this was so opposite of who I was in general. Like, why am I... Like, I don't want to be at this person's door because I don't want this person at my door. I don't want to have this conversation with this person because I don't, wouldn't want to be having this conversation with this person. So it was just I, so opposed to I what I couldn't do it. But that day was funny. There was one time I got stopped by a seven-day Adventist in Walmart. And I was just staring at her. And she's like, why are you not answering me? I said, because I'm trying to pick up eggs. And you sit here talking to me. Why are you talking to me? I'm trying to pick eggs. <laughs> and I'm just staring at her. And my mom is like, why do you have to be such a butthole all your life? <laughs> 
Because why are you bothering me and I'm trying to pick up eggs? Eggs is $10 a piece. I need to make sure they ain't cracked. <laughs> I really I really can be. When I, when I get ready, it's bad. It's bad. Um, I had a Mormon come to my door one time and... Mormons make no sense to me. I, at the first thing I asked him when he opened the door was how old his wife was. Because, you know, there's this thing about them marrying under... Yay! <laughs> no, but good. And he good stopped. Because I would have been dead. And he looked at me and he looked at the guy that he was with. And then he said, sorry to bother you. And they both just walked away. No, see me, I'm more ruthless. I'd have been like, so you, you marrying children? You a pedophile? I don't like pedophiles. Pedophiles get killed around here. I was waiting for the comeback, but he didn't say that. He just ran away. So I'm just like, okay, whatever. Solves Not the problem. How old is your wife? Yo, I wish they were still allowed to solicit because the things I would do, man, <laughs> I put a mousetrap under my front mat so when you kick it, it flip up and hit your toe. Or I leave a bucket of water on the top door so when you ring my doorbell, well, it pours down. I started telling people the easiest way to get out of it. It doesn't matter now because they come to your door. There's the easy way to get out of all of it, which is what I ended up doing because some started coming to my house who I had never met after a while. You know, they weren't at the hall mm -hmm. when I went to the hall. So they come to the door and they start talking. I'm disfellowshipped. Okay. And then they walk away. They can't talk to you. They can't say anything else beyond that point. So even if they, you never went to the hall, all you say to them is, I'm disfellowship, and it ends all conversation. They don't pursue anything else with you. Ooh, so I can do that at them tables? That's a get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm disfellowshipped. Put that on a, a print some cards <laughs> like that and give them to Jehovah's Witnesses so they can give them to people. Yeah. Not even, to everybody. Just, like, Pokemon, like, what's that game? Is it Yu-Gi-Oh? You flip the card? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I would do. Mm -hmm. Cross the table. Mm -hmm. All right, so if you don't have any more questions, we're going to conclude this no. since we're trying not to go over. I just think you your life in the Kingdom Hall was quite interesting. But anyway. Yes, I'm it was. It was very, uh, that's that's going to be at least a couple chapters in the book that I never actually get around to writing. Y'all tell, <laughs> tell Jay to write this gosh darn book. <laughs> if I got to write mine, he got to write his. Good <laughs> Lord, stress me out. <laughs> anyway. Well, well, with that, that's another one in the can. Um, that's episode two. And this has been Real Life with Jay and Jay. Signing, Signing off. off. <laughs> Peace, love, Cub Scouts. <laughs> <laughs>